will be gone and the men who spurred us on sit in judgment of all wrong they decide and the shotgun sings a song I'll tip my hat to the new constitution take a bow for the new Revolution, smile and grin, not the change all around. Pick up my guitar and play, just like yesterday. Then I'll get on my knees and pray. We don't get fooled again. Wow, that song by The Who really gets to the meat of the British government's dilemma. Throughout this podcast, you should be thinking about the British perspective and trying to answer the question, why was the British government justified in developing the coercive acts or the intolerable acts, as the colonists called them, after the dumping of the tea in Boston? As a quick reminder, we asked some questions in the first podcast. Do you remember some of them, Melissa? Yeah, I think so. We were um, wanting to know why tea was so important to both English and American colonists. Uh, what does tea have to do with the American Revolution? Right. Uh, what really happened at the Boston Tea Party? Good. And what are the consequences and of that, the Boston Tea Party? And that one's going to be the most important. Nice job. Yeah. Well, let's start our journey in the year 1763. In that year, the British military, with the help of the American colonists, most notably... George Washington, defeated the French and Native Americans in what became known as either the French and Indian War in the colonies or the Seven Years' War overseas. Historians consider it to be the first true world war, which should have been a celebration for both the English citizens and the American colonists was anything but. For the colonists, they had to contend with the proclamation of 1763, basically a peace treaty that the British negotiated with the French and to a lesser extent the Native Americans. Several issues that the colonists had with this treaty were, got any ideas? Well, it sounds like the British just negotiated with the French and even the Native Americans, which would be, you know, very close to the, the colonists. And they really didn't have, it sounds like any say in it. They really didn't have a voice in the treaty. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Uh, There's two other things that are important as well, because it prohibited the colonists from advancing west of the Appalachian Mountains, which is what they really wanted. They wanted more land. And two is Great Britain, or three is Great Britain stationed about 10,000 soldiers or redcoats who acted as a barrier to stop westward expansionism by the colonists and prevent conflict between the colonists and the Native Americans. Ooh, ouch. Yeah. As the colonists saw it, this peace treaty was pro-Native and anti-colonist. In point of fact, it was really neither. If the colonists were really dissatisfied with the proclamation, well, the British citizens were mad as heck with it. Hmm. 
you see the war against the French and Indians cost Great Britain dearly. In fact, 50% of the government revenues went to fund that war. Ouch. The debt incurred by the war was then passed along to the British people. As taxes went up, rioting in London also took place. So the British people essentially had to pay for this war that wasn't even taking place on their soil. So it was the war in America. So did the colonists get hit financially as well? Did they have to pay? No, that's the surprising thing. Not until the British government launched the Sugar Act of 1764. Oh. And even then the colonists protested. Well, that doesn't really seem very fair. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Again, that's the British perspective. Yeah. So King George III and the Parliament thought like you and I do and looked across the pond, what they called the Atlantic Ocean, for some help. It makes sense. Tax people that benefit by the government's action. In this case, war. I guess that's not really different than today. Yeah, exactly. This also brings to light one of the myths about the American Revolution which is that Great Britain was punishing, or somehow, or some, uh, as the colonists saw it, most notably Samuel Adams, attempting to enslave them. The truth is the royal crown's actions were reasonable, at least until 1773 they were. This is not to say that the British government didn't make some critical mistakes along the way. They did. Some of these include ignoring the colonists before the French and Indian War, for roughly 80 years, they practiced a hand, hands-off approach, which is often called solitary neglect. Two is the Parliament failed to act on the colonist slogan. You remember. Uh, is that the taxation without representation? Yep, you got uh -huh. it. It is likely that if the government, the British government, had given the colonists a voice, small as it may be, they would have found it more difficult to complain. Of course, we'll never know. But it is an interesting what if, don't you think? Oh my gosh, yeah. So, after the proclamation of 1763, the British government began taxing the colonists. These taxes started with the Sugar Act, which I already mentioned, then the Stamp Act of 1765, the Declaratory Act of 1766, and the Townsend Act of 1767. Mm. So, every year something is going on. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and each time they did this, the colonists protested sure. these taxes, most effectively by boycotting British goods. They hurt them where it, you know, hurts yeah. the most in the wallet or in the pocketbook. By 1770, things looked like revolution was inevitable. Wow. On the night of March 5th, 1770, British soldiers fired on a mob of colonists, killing five of them. Oh, no. Yes. The colonists, being good propagandists, inaccurately termed this... Uh, killing as the Boston Massacre. Oh. Yeah. In hindsight, this event should have been the event that triggered the American Revolution. Instead, after the Boston Massacre, colonists actually took a step back from agitating for revolution. But it would probably be really scary. The reaction by the Royal Crown was actually mild. They didn't arrest leaders of the mob. They didn't provo that provoked the soldiers. They didn't close colonial newspapers, and they didn't outlaw organizations like the Sons of Liberty from even meeting. From 1770 to the fall of 1773, almost three years, both sides had a cooling off period. Wow. So let's see if I have this right. 
it was actually to the point where there was bloodshed. But not only did this not start the American Revolution at this point, they actually kind of backed off on each other and let things go as as normal. Yeah, we're not exactly sure why. Maybe there was, uh, they got to the point where they thought maybe this wasn't a good situation, a uh, good fl- conflict to have. Hmm. Uh, they knew that the British government and the British military was far superior to what the colonists had, and yeah. they were not unified yeah. at this time. Yeah. So I know how much you like tea, so let's link tea with revolution. An unusual combination. All right, exactly. <laughs> we know at this point that Britain had three basic objectives in mind. The first of these was obtain revenue from the colonists to help pay off the war debt. Colonists love tea. Two, save the East Indian Company. Colonists love tea. And three, demonstrate control over the colonies. They didn't want this kind of behavior to influence other British colonies. And? Colonists love to drink tea. Exactly. (laughs) With those objectives in mind, the British government decided to enforce a tax on tea that was already on the books. So you mean the colonists should have been paying taxes on tea all along? Yes. Well, why weren't why weren't they doing that then? That was that's an excellent question. Hmm. The issue was having the people to oversee taxation and stop the colonists from smuggling tea from other countries. John Hancock was one of them who was happened to be the richest merchant in New England that smuggled a lot of tea. So John Hancock, our John Hancock, actually made his wealth from illegally smuggling tea. You are correct. (laughs) Hopefully you're seeing a trend, maybe the British perspective here. Oh, man. Okay, so with these uh, three objectives, the British allowed the East Indian Company to ship directly to the colonies, avoiding British taxation in the process and actually reducing the cost of tea to the colonists, which would also eliminate the smuggling side of things. So if I'm hearing you right, the price of tea is actually going down, or it actually went down because of these things. It sure did. Remember, the colonists... (laughs) They loved to drink tea. They did. The Tea Act of 1773 was a brilliant plan on paper. It is what business executives would call a win-win-win situation. Not all the colonists saw it this way, of course. The first of these colonists to take actions were the Sons of Liberty in New York and Philadelphia, not Boston. In both cities, they prevented tea from being unloaded. Eventually, the tea was shipped back to England. In the colony of South Carolina, the Sons of Liberty allowed the tea to be unloaded, but not sold. So, the Sons of Liberty in Boston might have been late into this game, but they didn't disappoint, is the Dartmouth, which is a British ship, the first of the three from the East Indian companies, docked at Griffiths Wharf, the Sons of Liberty circulated handbills that read, Friends, brothers, countrymen, that worst of plagues, the detested tea, shipped for this port by the East India Company, is now arrived in the harbor. Obviously, the colonists didn't like this, and they were stirring things up. So on December 16, 1773, John Hancock, the guy that likes to smuggle tea, declared, (laughs) Let every man do what is right in his own eyes. Yeah, so he basically laid down the gauntlet 
And with that declaration, between 40 and 150 Sons of Liberty dressed up as Mohawk Indians boarded the British ships. In total, the colonists dumped 340 chests of tea, or 90,000 pounds, oh worth about 10,000 pounds. In fact, oh the my tea was so, there was so much tea out in the harbor that it was coming back on board. Oh. They had to push it back into the water. Uh, this results in about, probably today, in about a million dollar loss at least. Oh, in goodness. Revenue. When the news of the Boston Tea Party reached England, even the most pro-colonists were stunned. Minister Lord North, hearing the news, said, Whatever may be the consequence, we must risk something. If not, all is over. Uh, even more uh, vocal was King George III, who had had enough when he declared, colon declared colonist actions unacceptable. He declared... The die is now cast. The colonies must either submit or triumph. We are now to dispute whether we have or have not any authority in that country. Sounds like a turning point Oof, to me. Yes. So what the uh, what became known as the P Boston Tea Party, that's not a name that they gave it until 1834. And when you think about it, it doesn't really make sense that somebody would call it a tea party. But they did eventually. It's a turning point in American history and American independence and the American Revolution in general. The outcomes of December 16, 1773 uh, are clear. The British government and the king had had enough of the colonists. After the Tea Party, the British saw themselves as the only adults in the room. Oh. And it was time to teach those adolescent colonists a few lessons. Specifically, the British government implemented five acts, which collectively became known as the Intolerable Acts. That's the term that the uh. colonists used. These acts took direct aim at the troublemakers in Boston by, what do you think? you have any guesses of what they did? Um, well, I would probably close off the, the port where they're attacking. I wouldn't put ships there anymore for fear that they would come and... Um, You're exactly right. Anymore. So they, they actually made, they said, we're going to close your ports until you pay for the tea that you destroyed. Okay. Any other ideas that they might do? Um, would they do anything to impact the government, the government there they in did, Boston or in Massachusetts? They took more control over the government by restructuring the government in uh, Massachusetts. Okay. And you got any last ideas? Well, I know that during the cooling off period, they were fine with like the Sons of Liberty and other people still meeting. I'm guessing they're not so fine with meetings anymore. <laughs> yes, they restricted town meetings. And to make things even more dicey, they made capital crimes punishable by trial in England. Oof. So uh, colonists didn't like that. And finally, probably one that they liked least was quartering British troops in Boston. Oh, no. Yeah, so um, not exactly what the, the colonists wanted or needed. Yeah. Uh, the reaction by the colonists was pretty bold as well. After the Boston Tea Party, they created the Continental Congress in 1774, which included 55 men, many of those signers of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. With this Continental Congress, the 13 colonies began a process of unification. 
When in 1775, as the British soldier, soldiers marched to Concord, 24 miles outside of Boston, the colonial Minutemen were ready for them. That's a story for another day. <laughs> well, I hope you've uh, enjoyed this podcast as much as I did making it with my amazing co-host, oh. Melissa Basinger. <laughs> I know that we reviewed a bunch of information, so let's review three takeaways that I hope you learned. One, that the road to revolution that might seem inevitable to us today was anything but. Yeah. Two, that the simple narrative of the good colonists and the bad British yeah. is a misnomer. As I like to say, history is complicated. Yeah. Third, that the events that occurred on December 16, 1773, were, were a turning point in the war for independence and therefore a turning point in American history. Revolutionary hero and one of my favorite historical figures, John Adams, said as much when he wrote in his diary shortly after the Tea Party, this destruction of tea is so bold, so daring, so firm, intrepid, and inflexible, and must have so important consequences, and so lasting that I can't but consider it an epic in American history. <laughs>